Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board games. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 191. May, may, may show, may shall my, my, how I think I got it right. <laughs> so close. <laughs> so close. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Today's a special episode. I have a guest, Lee Broderick, designer of the game. Maze nice how. Yes. <laughs> Hi, Albert. Hey, welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, Lee was on here about a year and a half ago talking about his other game, Dwarf. And apparently oh. I can't have, done, can't have done too terrible a job since you invited me back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was quite a fun show. I, I actually listened to it again just to get ready for this one and, and I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah, I remember having a good time recording it with you. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. So, so today we're talking about your new game, which... As we're speaking, it is not yet on Kickstarter, but by the time you hear this, it will be on Kickstarter for a couple of days now because it's going live the 21st. That's correct, yeah. Okay. And this episode will be airing on Saturday, which is, I guess, the 23rd. Uh, yeah, I think that's how maths works. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so let's just go ahead and start since it's uh, since we try and do short shows and, and don't really succeed that much. Um <laughs> So, so first off, how have you been doing? I mean, how, how has this last year been for you? It's, um, it's It's been an interesting year. I don't want to go into it too much. I've had a load of um, personal issues as well as the, the lockdown things that everybody's been mm-hmm. struggling with. Um, but yeah, you know, hopefully 2022, we're looking forward to that now, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 2021 may work out in the end. We'll see. It's it, it's it's starting with a bang. Sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so were you able to travel last year? Did you get to go to Mongolia again? And you mentioned before you go every every year for a couple months. For a yeah, yeah, I haven't been for a while now. And the, the project out there actually is, um, has been suspended for a couple of years. Obviously, you know, pandemic doesn't help with that. Um, mm-hmm. I think the last time I was out there would have been... I went out there in December, uh, about eighteen months ago, I think. Oh, okay. um, and that was just into the into the city, so that was interesting. I remember that okay. the first day I was there, I was still jet lagged. I got off the plane. I was trying to find somewhere to get breakfast. I eventually found a, a cafe that was open because, of course, me being me, I turned up on the day of a national holiday without realizing it. <laughs> Whoops! And I, 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 I was I was forewarned that. The smog in Ulaanbaatar, it's the, it's the most polluted air, air pollution, most polluted city in the world. It sort of sits in a bowl of mountains and it's cold air. So the, there's five coal power stations in there as well, and it just sits over the oh, city. Wow. So I was forewarned it was really bad. And I came out the cafe and I thought, oh, God, you know, I, I can smell this coal. It's awful. And then I realized across the road there was a car on fire. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's... That's that's kind of crazy, honestly. <laughs> yeah, this is it's the main, it's the busiest street in the entire city, and there's nothing on it but this car on fire. Great fun! <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Welcome, welcome to Mongolia. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's and it's cold there year round. You were there in December. Yeah, yeah, it gets really cold there. It's um, it's, I mean, I, I can't remember if we said before, but I know U.S. colleagues that um, go to Mongolia and experience different parts of the U.S. Always compare it to Montana sort of wide open blue blue skies and yeah when it gets cold it gets cold Gosh, okay. is it is it also high altitude did you also have to deal with uh, yeah being able to breathe yeah the the countries that are an average sea level i think of uh, about 1500 meters above sea level oh wow okay so 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 you have the the bitter cold the high yeah. altitude and the terrible pollution to deal with all yeah at yeah wow. <laughs> all at once <laughs> sounds fun yeah when do you um, go back <laughs> yeah but anyway as i say i didn't go out last year after all of yeah. that preamble um yeah i haven't really been anywhere i think since uh well march last year i went for a walk about 20 miles away in a national park here called the cotswolds and that's the last time that i went far from my front door wow okay yeah <laughs> it's been so weird yeah <laughs> all right so um gosh I, I just wanted to mention something last time mm-hmm. we talked we talked a lot about Uwe Rosenberg games. We did, yeah. And and I wanted to bring this up. You mentioned the Newsfront expansion, which mm. I had just gotten and had yet not even opened. And you told me, oh, it's got these little tiny itty bitty metal coins. Yeah. So that sounds nice. And 
And when I opened my copy after we talked, <laughs> wow, they really are tiny. I cannot believe it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just got the new expansion just came out. Well, here it came out recently. I got it like two weeks ago. And they've got more of the same coins. Okay. I haven't seen the new one. But yeah, it seems like an odd decision. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, we, I would thought they would have replaced the the, the, the five coins. Yeah, to make a, a set. I, I, maybe it's maybe it just a cost issue that they already had these small ones kicking around. <laughs> Oh, maybe that's what it is. They're going to have to release another expansion, not just so they could get big coins. Yeah. Really. Yeah. I mean, those small ones were the ones that needed replacing. They were so fiddly, the cardboard ones. But yeah, yeah. it makes little sense having multiple expansions with the same offering. Yep. Have you played the new game? He's got the, the one. Out. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I've played it seven times now, I think. And I'm, oh, okay. I'm, still, I'm still trying to settle in whether I think it's good or really good. Oh, um, okay. it's, it's, I think it's a, a top five Uwe game for me. Um, wow. And I think some of the criticism I've seen is that the people have watched the playthroughs and they've said, oh, yeah, so far as I can see that you you just do what the card says and there's not really much thinking in it. And that sort of made me think about it again. And actually, it is those cards that make the game because, yes, you get them and it's a no-brainer you want to play them. But really, every round is sort of this tactical puzzle of trying to work out how to play that card uh, because they've all got resource costs to pay them. So really, that's you know that's mm. what the game comes down to. Every round, you you want you're going to have some cards in your hand, um, and you're going to want to make the most of those cards. So it's you know, how to, how do I do that? And that's what the game boils down to, really. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. So it's not it's not a matter of whether you play the card or do something else. You're going to play the card. You're going to play the card. They're, they're all sort of really useful, super powerful bonuses that uh, are going to score your points or give you resources or in some way help you to win the game. So you're going to want to play them. Um, and some of them lead you to extra, you know, they give you extra cards. So you, you can build up these chains. Um, yeah, and it's, it's just a case of figuring out how to play those cards in each round because they can all be played at any time as well. There's not like a card playing window. Mm -hmm. um so it's a question of yeah how to get the resources to play the cards when to play them and that uh, yeah that's what the game is and where the decision is okay i'm gonna have to keep an eye out for it then it's, it's a good game it's i think it's sort of top five uve for me as i say nice yeah yeah i like his games i always do <laughs> <laughs> so so enough of uve let's talk about your game now right so, so yeah that's what we're here for right Yep, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not forget it. Um, there's something we're gonna do. <laughs> so, so tell us about the game Mazeau, and the, the let's start with the theme because I think it's a really neat theme, right? It's based on ancient ruins. It is it's always fun. Yeah, um, and and a specific story of ancient ruins as well. Um, so I'm going to assume that uh, that most listeners know nothing about Maze Howe and nothing about Orkney either. Um, so Orkney is uh, a little um, archipelago off the northeast tip of Scotland. Um, it's got some of the most remarkable uh, Stone Age ruins, for want of a better word, um, in the whole of Europe. Um, Scarabray is a complete stone village that's been preserved um, in amongst the sand dunes there it's it's preserved because it, there's very little in the way of um, wood and trees on Orkney um, but they were fortunate on the island that they have this stone that splits the same way that wood does so you can sort of get a, a, a chisel in it and it just splits into sort of planks mm -hmm. um, so it's a very easy building material that can be worked similarly to wood and has survived for 5,000 years. So we can look at these buildings. And if you know, Scarabray, if you look at uh, pictures online, you'll see it's this, this amazing sort of uh, village with little streets and houses with um, some some stone-built furniture, hearths and shelves and things that are still in these houses. And these predate the pyramids. It's absolutely amazing. Wow, okay. I've, I've heard of Scarabray. I think I remember it from um, mm -hmm. Ultima video game. Okay. It was one of the villages you could visit. I did not realize it was, it was named after a real place. Yeah, there you go. Um, so Maze Howe is um, sort of contemporary with that. It's another Stone Age monument. Um, in this case, it's uh, a chambered tomb, um, which were fairly common across Britain um, during the, the Stone Age, uh, the Neolithic. And these chambered tombs were sort of communal places. They weren't, you know... Uh, shove one body in it and build them around up over them and that's that 
they have a passage coming into them and their de deposits of uh, deposits that they're where the dead are deposited from the community and people still we think used to go into those monuments and interact with their ancestors um, the, the bones of different people would be mingled and sorted and you might have all the thigh bones in one chamber of the tomb and all the skulls in another chamber of the tomb and in that way we think um so this is me being an archaeologist now <laughs> in that in that way we think that the the roles of the the ancestors continue to play a part in the lives of the living and people used to go there and consult them and just to be with them um so that's how maze how fit into things and a few years ago um i was lucky enough to go to a conference um in orkney um i'll, I'll add that people from orkney get very upset if you call it the orkneys <laughs> the orkney oh, islands okay. are okay and orkney is okay but they get upset about the orkneys for some reason um anyway i was lucky enough to go there for a conference in i think it was the beginning of 2016 um my partner's also an archaeologist. She came with me, and both of us had always said that you know this was somewhere we'd love to go uh, for obvious reasons. So we spent uh, an extra week there. We drove up in the car, um, caught the ferry across, and spent a week um, in Orkney, driving around visiting all these monuments. And one of the ones we wanted to visit was Mace Howe, which is this, uh, I think, twenty foot or twenty. Uh, I think the internal dimension is 20 foot. The, the mound itself that covers it obviously is much higher. It's a really impressive um, chamber tomb. As I say, it stands out from a long way away. You can see it because it's quite a flat landscape it sits in. Um, okay. And I was aware of it from, the, from its Neolithic architecture point of view. Um, I was also aware of it having probably a decade or so ago read some of the, the Viking sagas. And one of the sagas is the Orkney Inga saga, which, as it suggests, um, deals with the the Vikings in Orkney. Um, and it played a couple of different roles in that saga. That's, uh, it, first of all, it got um, broken into by t uh, tomb raiders, effectively. Um, and the sagas tell how they found a great deal of treasure and then buried it and... You know, I don't know how familiar you are with the sagas. I think it's very tempting sometimes to to see the Icelandic sagas as uh, as sort of myth and fairy tale and legend. And in the yeah. early sagas, in particular, um, that's true. You know, there is a lot of yeah. They're one of our primary sources for um, Norse religion. But by the time we get to the later sagas, they're being written more or less contemporarily with what's happening. And they become much more historical documents. And the whole thing, a bit like some of the, the later um, Irish legends, are, are what we refer to in archaeology and history as proto-history. There's some reality in there and there's some myth and they sort of get mixed up together and part of the skill is discerning what's what. So I remember yeah. reading this story of the, you know, the treasure hunting in the tomb and I thought, oh, yeah, right, you know, that's, that's clearly myth. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then three years later, um, a different Jarl, um, he gets trapped in the tomb um, when he's sheltering from a, a snowstorm that blunders up from or conjures up from nowhere. Um, he's traveling across Orkney um, at Christmas to go from one hall to another. Um, the snowstorm gets up. He, he, you know, the visibility is right down um, and they, him and his party see what they think is a, a house. Um, and if you imagine, you know, round houses back then. And they walk round this house and they can't find the door. So in desperation, they go, right, okay, well, if we can't get the door, we, we're going to get into this house somewhere. We're going to go through the roof. So they climb up on, on top of what it turns out isn't a house, but is actually Mace Howe and promptly fall through the hole that the other guy had made three years earlier. Oh, wow. So, so suddenly they find themselves trapped underground and having to dig their way out. You know, they've survived the snowstorm, but if they're going to carry on living, they've got another problem on their hands now. Um, so that was sort of a background as to how I'd first heard of Maze Howe. Um, and then, as I say, I was at, on Orkney visiting these places and I went to Maze Howe expecting to look at the, the Neolithic architecture and marvel at that. And instead, what really caught my attention was inside the, the monument is the largest collection of uh, Norse runic graffiti out anywhere outside of Scandinavia. 
<laughs> okay. So um, so they just went and got spray paint and painted all over it a few hundred. Well, they, this ago? is well, this is carved into the rock. Oh, okay. It's very, yeah, rather than paint, it's actually carved in. Um, and there's a lot of symbolic stuff as well. There's this sort of enigmatic creature known as the Maze Howl Dragon. Nobody's quite certain is it a dragon or a griffin or a wolf. But there's loads of really impressive graffiti there. And I think there's over 30, um, I say, runic textual things that are carved into the stone. Um, and one of them actually says, yeah, I was here. I, I was one of Ronvald's men when we found the treasure. And it's buried 300 yards from here. Nobody's ever found the treasure. But the idea that there was actually, you know, there was somebody there and there was this attestation contemporary attestation that these were real events it just completely blew my mind and at the time i was sort of dallying with um with writing some short stories and i came away thinking i'm people more people should know this story it's just incredible you know they, these survival stories of treasure and people going mad as they got stuck in this tomb that um harold madison the, the yarl that uh, that sheltered from the storm there the, the sagas mentioned how two of his men went mad um and they, they're just incredible human stories. Um, so as I say, I was trying to think, yeah, more people should know these. Maybe I could write a, a short story that was more contemporary and bring it to people's attention that way. Mm-hmm. And the following week, as I was driving back down through Scotland, um, I think my partner was asleep in the car. And I started to think, no, you know what? Not a story. This would make such a good game and such a good solo game where you could actually experience this feeling of being trapped and try to escape yourself. So that was how the inspiration for the game um, first came about. Wow! Okay. <laughs> wow, that, that's a that's a heck of a backstory for the game. There's yeah, thanks. Which things... is why I've spent far longer talking about it than I probably should. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of things I find a, a really fascinating out of that. One is that these ruins are are five thousand years old, and mm-hmm. you know, that's basically the same time as the pyramids were being built. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And if you see the the box cover, obviously it's um you know it's, it's a drawing original to us. Um, but mm-hmm. the artist has done a lot of research, and that is actually the structure of the tomb on the inside at Maze Howe. Okay, I like that picture because it gave me a sense of what it looked like, a really good sense of it. The because I've, yeah. I've heard of pyramids before, but I really didn't know what they were. And seeing this, I was like, oh. Oh, I, I get it now. It's it's, it's a big round. Building, yeah, yeah, that's right. Really quite understood. Yeah, no, the artist did a phenomenal job. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. the The other thing I really found interesting about the the story is the mm. the the guy that left the graffiti about the treasure three hundred yeah. yards away, three hundred meters away. <laughs> that must have been a joker, because because <laughs> I would not if I'm burying treasure, I'm not going to tell everybody where I put it. <laughs> Well, this is it. And I mean, you know, so when it eventually got um, the first sort of time in the modern period that um, that Mays Howe was excavated was by a, a Victorian um, in the latter half of the, the 19th century. Um, mm-hmm. And he found nothing. The tomb was completely empty. Um, so he sort of focused on this uh, on this graffiti, actually, of translating things. And that was sort of what he got to publish out of it. But there was, there was no bodies, there was no treasure, there was absolutely nothing in this tomb whatsoever. And nobody has ever found this treasure. So, you know, maybe it's still out there. You know, that sounds a lot like the Fountain of Youth or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep looking for it. It's out there. Don't worry. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, that is a, that's a pretty neat story. Um, do we know anything else about the... the- the heroes of the game, the, the two guys that are trapped inside there and went back. Yeah, we do. I mean, obviously, this is, uh, you know, we've got the sagas to thank for this again. As I say, you at this point, they're written, being written more or less contemporarily. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, R- Ronvald Kali Carlson is, in particular, a really interesting character, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, he was born as the the son of the sister of the the Jarl of Orkney. Um, but he grew up in um, in Norway. I think it's sort of a bit, nobody's quite certain exactly where he was born, but it was certainly uh, in the Norwegian court. And this time in history, um, Orkney, although it's just off the coast of Scotland, um, was in dispute as to, was it part of the Norwegian kingdom? Was it part of the Scottish kingdom? Um, so at some point in his life, he was... Um, he was given uh, half of the uh, the Yaldum of Orkney by the the king of uh, Norway, um, 
and that was to be the other half was his uh, his uncle just before he got to Orkney to, to take over his half his second cousin um, took over the entire thing and I think killed his uncle I'm not quite certain oh, he wow. he then did a this, this second cousin wasn't too popular um, the sagas tell how he was um, I think it's a bit disputed whether they say he abdicated or whether his whether um, Ron Vald's mother had him poisoned. Um, but regardless, he set up then that he was the Earl of Orkney. So he did accede to the throne. And he was a really, as, as well as being um, obviously a, a capable politician and um, and warrior, as you know, his, his taking back of Orkney showed, um, he, he was a really accomplished, um, I think what would later be called a Renaissance man. He's a very accomplished poet. A lot of his poems survive and, is, and have been... Um, translated um some of them are love poems some of them tell of his travels he went on uh, pilgrimage he led a crusade um to the holy land um which was what he was doing immediately after his uh, treasure raid of the tomb of Mays how that's why they buried it instead of taking taking it with them it was the, the night before they left the crusade they decided to go and plunder this tomb oh, okay <laughs> as you do and that's um, what got him in trouble like yeah last minute hey let's go raid a place <laughs> Um, but yeah, he was really accomplished. One of his other, um, I mean, the, the, the sagas describe him as average height, but well-proportioned, strong-limbed and chestnut hair and popular and uh, very able man. And he, he writes the poems himself of these nine exceptional skills he possesses. Um, and they were, you know, reading and writing and skiing and archery and poetry, as we've just discussed. Also board games. That was one of the nine skills he, he wanted to brag oh, at. Really? But he was really good at mastering <laughs> board games, which I think oh, is fascinating cool. for us. Um, yeah. But before setting off on his pilgrimage as well, his, his um, Harold Maddison, the other Jarl in the game, is his nephew. Um, so he was the nephew of the previous Jarl, and Harold is, is his nephew. Um, Harold is actually the son of the, the Mormer of Caithness. Mormer is sort of the Scottish equivalent of a Jarl. Okay. Um, and Cave Ness is this sort of really uh, um, politically important part of Scotland at that point. Um, he, he's, he actually can trace descent to Scottish kings as well, um, Harold. Wow. Okay. So, um, you know, Ron said was very, obviously very capable politically. Um, his, his nephew is only five years younger than him, but he actually restores what the Norwegian king gave him effectively, that he says, okay, well, half of this Yaldum is yours now, um, having taken it back from his second cousin. Um, he goes off, the, he takes Harald um, to go and meet the king of Norway. That all seems fine. This is immediately before his crusade and the tomb break. Um, shortly after... Um, he goes on his crusade. Harold is sort of in charge on his own. Um, and another Viking comes and captures him, captures Orkney. Um, and this triggers this whole series of events, which culminates in that Viking that captured him being killed, in Ronvald being killed when he comes back from his crusade, um, in other nobles being killed, until eventually um, Harold succeeds to being the Jarl of Orkney, not under the, the patronage of either the King of Norway or the King of Scotland, just this self-contained state. So we, yeah, the short answer to your questions, we know a lot about both of them, and they're both really interesting characters. Yeah, wow. Okay, I had, I had no idea. I, from um, the the notes I had read in the rule book, um, I thought there were just just two guys, you know, like yeah, no yeah. Idea. No, I know that obviously we're limited to space. What we can put into the, yeah. the rule book. <laughs> Yes. Okay. So, so if a person wants to know more, then the place to go is the Orkneyinga Saga. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, we are. I'm not. Um, I'm not certain if we're going to be able to do this at the moment. Although, actually, I'm just receiving a, a reply while we're live on air about this question I asked the publisher. So maybe I'll come oh. back to that in a moment. But the Orkneyinga Saga. Yeah, that that's the place to go for. Um, you know, the, the stories around the the kings of um, the kings, the jarls of Orkney. Um, and yeah, the, the Ronvald again actually becomes a saint later. Oh, okay. he, become, wow. he becomes Saint Ronvald, and his um, 
and, and he built a cathedral on Orkney as well, which is dedicated to St. Magnus the First, King of uh, the First Jarl, Viking Jarl, I should say, of Orkney. Oh, okay. uh, so, so the Orkneyinga saga, you could buy those and, and read those today. They're they're easy to get. Are they hard to read? Or are they pretty accessible? You think? Um, it, it depends. I mean, as with any of these things, it depends on on the translator. Um, you, you know, you can bet you can buy copies of them in paperback easy enough. You're sort of you know Oxford Penguin classics kind of things. Um, they they don't read as easily as a as a modern piece of fiction um, because the translations have been done you know longer ago than that, <laughs> and often mm-hmm. by sort of um, academics as opposed to storytellers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but they are interesting. They are you know they're certainly readable. They have been translated into modern English. Um. What I was going to say was, and I'm still say I'm still waiting to find out whether this is going to happen or not. But we have discussed the possibility of having a, an ebook version um, of the Orkney Orkneyinga saga um, as an add-on during the Kickstarter campaign. Oh, nice. Okay, that'd be cool. And, and yeah, yes, I, I hope we'll get that done. It's got to be in the public domain by now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> it's only been a thousand years. <laughs> the so very, very, that's very cool. That that is really interesting. Is it originally a poem or or prose? I think it's prose. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I might be wrong on that on that regard, but I think it's I think it's prose. Um, yeah, the, obviously there are, there are sagas that exist in prose and and poem. Yep. Of course, that doesn't that doesn't mean the translation will necessarily be in the same format. But... No, that's right. That's right. Um, but you know, I think they're fairly consistent with that. Okay. Well, let, let's go ahead and talk about the game itself because we've, I mean, listeners now have the backstory and a half there. So, so okay, and I think game... the publish, I think the publishers literally just confirmed that we are going to have the ebooks available. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. <laughs> that that'll be nice. Yeah. Um. So the game, and I love that it that is live information. Just <laughs> Break, breaking news, exclusive. Breaking news. It couldn't be more breaking than this. <laughs> All right. So, so the uh, the game. The game itself is pretty dark, right? And and the, the theme is dark. Yeah, uh, you're you're trying to survive. You're you're starving to death potentially. You're trapped in a really dark dungeon. Yeah, it's it's not a happy place to be. <laughs> no. So the art really reflects it. The game box is all dark. The cards yeah. are dark. Everything about the game is so it sets a mood really well. I think. It, yeah, it does a fantastic job. I, I think so. Can you tell us about the artist? And I can. We've we've actually got two artists um, on okay. the game. Um, so they are Lars Monk and Matthias Catrian. Mm-hmm. Um, Lars did the art for Dwarf as well, mm-hmm. um, and he was the person that the publisher first suggested for doing the art for this. And I mean, I've, I've quite, quite honestly, I was reticent. I, I loved the work that Lars did for Dwarf, um, but you know, that's that's a much more light-hearted game. Yes. Um, and I know Lars has also done a lot of um, children's book illustrations as well, so that's sort of his oeuvre. Um, but you know, we, we spoke fairly on, and he came back to me. I, I, I directed him to the the PMP copy of the of the previous game that this is based on, um, and he came back to me and said, "Neo, I, I get it. This is a very existential game." And I said, "You know, yes, that's the word." And I was really reassured that he got it. Um, he did the cover, um, and then. I think he got busy, caught up doing some other things, and we were worried that he wasn't going to be able to do all the card art. Um, mm-hmm. So he's done some of the cards, um, but some of the others were done by Matthias Catrian, um, who is probably best known doing the art for Dominion. Oh, okay. Um, and again, you know, I think, uh, like with Lars, we had a lot of backwards and forwards, and to begin with, there was some artwork that uh, that didn't seem to fit. He didn't quite get the tone of it, and he was making things bright and colourful and everything else. But in the end, um, you know, again, he did a really good job of capturing the mood of it, and um, and uh, Marco, that does the, the graphic design, has helped as well. That I think I mean, the, the fact that you didn't realise there were two artists is great news. I don't think you can tell the difference between them straight away. They, they fit in the game. There's nothing jarring about moving from one card to another, that they both capture the tone and fit the game and fit with each other. Yeah, absolutely. It, it all does fit well. Now that you've said it, I can guess, and I don't know if I guess correctly or not, but I could guess which cards were done by who. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're all dark. There's there's one card that bothers me when I see it, the uh, Eat. Yeah, yeah, I thought you might mention that. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a, it's, that, it's that, a that's, great card. That's... It's the gratuitous graphic violence card. 
It, it really is. <laughs> but you know what? It, it sets the, the, the setting really well because you get a sense of what these guys are going through. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think so, as you say. It's, um, I mean, again, we've had conversations with the publisher who keeps asking um, asking me and the developer whether we're sure about having the the age guidance on the game so high because they keep saying oh it's a simple game and i have to keep saying well yes but you know the, the theme is not something that a lot of people would be comfortable with their children playing and and the art supports that theme you know this, this is brutal it's gritty it's dark um yeah. and and yeah that's uh, that's that's where we are with the game and say the the art supports that and helps carry it through Okay, yeah. There's another card that bothers me, and for entirely different and kind of a silly reason. <laughs> Every yeah, time are you going to say the goose? No, not the, no. <laughs> not the goose. The, the, I've had two two reviewers so far have commented on the goose. Which were you going to say? Uh, excavate. Excavate. Yeah, and so the reason this one bothers me is because now that I see it, I cannot unsee it, but it doesn't look like a guy digging. It looks like Cthulhu. <laughs> which honestly makes the game that much more you know hard and... <laughs> dreadful and, and whatnot and it, so it worked but I, I know what it is and yet every single time i say oh look it's a cthulhu <laughs> I, I haven't seen that maybe maybe it'll affect me going forwards now as well uh, if it does <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> but it, it is a nice game it, it really looks nice so so now let, let's go move on and talk about the gameplay mm. right you, you already mentioned it's a pretty simple gameplay yeah uh, a kid could play it it's you're basically each turn you're playing two cards Discarding right. one and playing another one to a row of cards. Yeah. And taking the effect of the card. That's that's basically the gameplay. Oh, exactly could, that, yeah. Could, could you describe it more? Because um, there's stuff I'm missing, like the digging <laughs> and all that, that sort of matters. Yeah, so th- there's really sort of, um, you know, if you want to break it down into to mechanisms that um, the board game players are familiar with, um, it, it really comes down to three things, which are hand management, resource management, and set collection. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the digging, um, as you say, that's you know, that that's the core aim of the game. Um, you want to get out of the tomb um, alive. That's how you win. To do that, you have to remove the the passage sections um, from the the tomb board. Um, and to remove the passage sections, you have to play four excavate passage cards in a row, which will make a set of four. Okay, sounds easy. <laughs> yeah, pretty easy, right? Um, other cards that you'll play can. Um, add or remove health you've got four health to to manage and if you run out of health then you die you lose the game um other cards will add food or remove food or convert food into health so that's your your resource management portion of the game um and then the second way you can lose the game other than by running out of health is for your draw deck to run out um so the hand management part of the game comes in that there's two suits in the game. Um, you can use these in a beneficial way. If you if your set of four Excavate Passage cards also matches on the same suit, you can remove two Passage tokens instead of one. But it has a different effect as well, that if all five cards in your hand are the same matching suit, then you go mad. And what this means in game mechanic terms is that you immediately discard your hand, you shuffle the discard pile back into the draw pile, and draw up and start again. And at the same time, you lose one health and one maximum health. Which sounds awful. And, you know, it should be. Nobody wants to go mad, right? Yep. But sometimes you need to let off steam. Sometimes you need to have that moment where you shout and scream and wail at the, the situation you find yourself in and then collect yourself and go again. There's only so many times you can do that, which is why you're losing a maximum health. But because, you're, you, because you've done that, you feel a bit better, but you can carry on. And that's the only way in the game to cycle through the deck, which you're going to need to do if you're on the higher difficulty levels and you need, because you're, you're not going to get through the, the deck in one pass to, to excavate all these tomb sections. Yeah, if you do, you need to shuffle better, really. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it can happen, right? You know, the, right. any sort of deck of cards, you can have you know, randomly really good or really bad luck and that that's just the way a deck of cards works um but most times that's not going to happen and so that then means that the discard pile is not just you know the, the played cards generally speaking are gone from the game the discard cards you're probably going to have to encounter again so suddenly just discarding a card a bad card from your hand and taking the lesser of the two bad effects 
often a bad card will have a or a negative card will have a, a bad effect if it's played and a slightly less bad effect if it's discarded. Suddenly, just discarding that for the less bad effect is not the easy choice you might think because, as I say, there's a chance you're going to encounter it again on the second time round. So mm-hmm. that's sort of where the the core decision of play of the game, the decision space of the game lies. I think. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, um, you've been playing it, Albert. What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm enjoying it. I, I, everything you said, I agree with. I like the 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 idea that going mad is bad, but sometimes you kind of need to do it. And, yeah. And it's helpful. Sometimes it's out of your control. The last time I played, I mm-hmm. went mad immediately. You know, my my five cards that I had started the game with were all blue, the blue rune. I so, played two of them. Right. And, well, I played two, and then I drew two more blue ones. Okay, yeah, no, yeah, that can happen. I was, I, I was going to say, you know, you can't go mad on your opening hand, but you you what you do have that risk that um, you know, if yeah, if if you draw up two after the first five were also the same color, then yeah, you're you're going to to run into it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, it wasn't entirely a bad thing. So, so I I drew my initial hand. I said, okay, they're all blue. There's a chance I'm going to draw blue ones again. There's a good chance that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So. I still need to think about what I'm going to play now and and do that most effectively. So I, I realize that I'm going to play one of those excavate cards now because mm-hmm. that might be useful. There's a good chance I'll draw more excavate next because there's so many in the deck. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what I discard at all because all my cards are going to go away. So let me pick the, the one that hurts me the least. And I did that and it worked out just the way I was hoping it would. <laughs> so, so it's it's neat because I mean, yeah, it's 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 another thing you have to manage it and mm. plan for it and deal with, which is is fun. Yeah, that's right. It's not just a you know, a, a punishment that is random and um, and, and yeah, d- does nothing but harm you. It's part of the game that you've got to to plan for and try to time if you can and plan around if you can't. Mm-hmm. You know about those runes. I was looking them up to see if they meant anything, and I, I found <laughs> I found the red rune, and it's the letter H. Yeah, and apparently <laughs> it means hail. Just oh, that's so thematic. That's so perfect, right? Yeah. What? <laughs> I could not find the other one. Um, the other one I think is an F, and you're the you're the third person I think that's asked me about these runes. And I wish I could say I'd made a thematic choice, um, particularly as you say, you know, H for Harold, that kind of works. Um, but I didn't make a thematic choice at all. I was I was presented with a, a runic font by a graphic designer and asked to pick two. And I chose the two that were A, sort of most aesthetically pleasing that people think of that kind of thing when they think of a rune and B, were visually distinctive enough that it wasn't a problem if you're playing with, um, you know, if, if you're colorblind. Uh, yeah. Um, so it was an entirely functional choice on my part, and the fact that you're the third person that's asked about it has kind of made me regret not putting more thought <laughs> into the theming of it. But uh, there we go. So, so that second one that I could not find, what is that? What do you know of it? I think it's the letter or? F. Oh, you said F. Okay. Yeah. Me that. Yeah. Okay. I w- when I was looking this up, I learned that the the word Bluetooth, to- totally on a tangent here, is also <laughs> based on is two runes put together. It is, and it's named after Harold Bluetooth. Yeah, that's, I thought that's the neatest thing. It's it's basically it's the the abbreviation of Bluetooth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly that, and it's uh, it's named after Harold Bluetooth. It was a uh, when when the technology was devised, it was a joint operation between Ericsson, who are a Swedish company, and Nokia, who are Finnish. Um, so they named it after Harold Bluetooth, who was a, a unifying Viking king across Scandinavia. Okay, yeah, that's so neat. <laughs> so, so yeah, I learned quite a few things from this game so far. Full marks to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I've got a another question about the gameplay. The, mm. the the main mechanic right of digging is you're playing four cards to that row, and they all yeah. need to match. It really reminds me a lot of Onirum, right? Which is the same sort of game where you're playing cards yeah. from your hand to the row, and and really stressing out about which is the card I should play now, and is mm-hmm. it going to work out for me or not? Is did that inspire you, or is that just sort of like a happy accident? It's it's, it's a really interesting question. I think, um, like I say, you know, the the predecessor of this game that um, was you know it was in the solo PMP contest um, mm-hmm. four or five years ago. Um, I remember being interviewed, I think for for um, for Morton's blog about that uh, PMP design, um, and one of the questions was if you were to compare this game to another, if people asked you, which game is this most like, um, what would you say? And I, and I said only room. So I, I was very aware that that was, you know, it's closest um, 
cousin facsimile. Um, People that are vaguely familiar with some of my rantings in the one-player guild over the years will probably know that I'm not a fan of Onirim. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, so it's it's something I I can see the similarity, um, even if I'm not a fan of the other game. Um, Obviously, you know, I think this is better. Um, But I, I would say that, wouldn't I? Yeah, well, you yeah. know, the, the, the <laughs> one big, big advantage to this over Ornirum is Ornirum is that the uh, you don't have to constantly reshuffle your deck. You know, there, there's a lot less cards. shuffling. There's a lot less shuffling. I mean, the, the thing is, uh, you know, growing up, um, I played a hell, hell of a lot of Patience, um, mm-hmm. both the the Klondike variants and uh, Clock Patience as well. My mother introduced me to. Um, so that's sort of something I've done throughout my life, and. Onirim was the the first modern um, solo game that I bought. I remember when I found out about it. Um, I found out about it and Friday at the same time. And at the time, Friday was okay. out of stock everywhere in the UK. So Onirim was what I got. And I, I was so excited that there was a modern game designed just for solo play because yeah, my, my partner isn't so into board games and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I played it a lot over a year or so, I think, before I found the one-player guild. Um, by the time I joined the one player guild, it was something I was already trading away in a math trade because it just never quite clicked with me. Um, okay. that I, yeah. I think um, I eventually came to the conclusion it didn't do anything for me that standard patients, Klondike patients didn't. Um, oh, less shuffling. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And yeah, it was it was relaxing, it was meditative, but it wasn't really challenging or engaging me in any way, despite the fact that I loved the art. Um so that that was why I got rid of that. Um, I, I I think, as I say, you know, I'm obviously biased, and perhaps you can offer some less biased views. But I, I you know, I think Maze How and Orkney Saga is um, is more streamlined, is tighter, is shorter, and really is a, a more focused game. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It, the, the mechanics there, there's less things to worry about when you're playing. So there's just you're, you're focusing on your hand and mm. the row. And the runes, which, yeah, it is more streamlined for sure. The, um, but then you also have three expansions of the box, which are going to add yeah. to the game a bit, aren't they? Yeah, and I, I, you know, obviously that invites comparisons with Only Room again, right? Mm, that's right. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> that was also full of expansions of the box. And so, so your expansions are each three cards exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and I like which how sounds they- like nothing, but it actually makes a big impact on the game. I think you'll agree. Yeah, each each of the cards they're minor and there's only three, so the odds of them showing up are not that high. Like you know, it's, it's, it's a small cards. Exactly, it's a small deck of cards to begin with. So yeah, it's sort of one in nine or one in eleven, maybe. It's it's you, you are going yeah. to see those cards when you've got a hand of five cards and you're drawing two every turn. That's true. Yeah, yeah, because you, you do go through the, pretty much probably mm. you go through the whole deck. Hopefully yeah. you don't. Hopefully you finish before. Uh, yeah, most games you're going to, and you know, on, on you know the higher difficulty levels, you're going to have to go through it more than once as well. Yes, that's right. And so, so the cards, the three expansions are each alliterative, which is kind of neat, right? There's horror <laughs> and hope, and what is the other two? Um... We've got uh, conservation and crumble, and gluttony and Ghana. Yep. And so, so each of these, it's three cards, one good card and two bad cards, basically. That's, that's pretty much it, yeah. Um, they all interact with different parts of the game um, that are, are, are present in the core rules. You know, they, they don't change anything, um, but they sort of explore the design space around those um, around those mechanics. So hope and horror really um, interacts with the going mad mechanic. Um, mm-hmm. Gluttony and Ghana, um, that's making more use of the food resource. Um, and conservation and crumble is um, giving you some interaction with the uh, with the cards that you've played to the row and sort of bringing them back into the game. So it's it's playing around the edges of the design space in a way that's making more use of those. Yeah, which is I have not played with the the, the third one yet. The conversation con- conservation and crumble. Mm-hmm. I've only tried either two, but you know, honestly, I I tried them out to try them and then have been going back to just the base game and still still playing that way because I'm still enjoying it. That's good. That's which, good. So yeah, so there's a lot more life in it. You know, I. I think, mm play this another dozen times without the expansions before before i feel i need to add them that speaks a lot for the core gameplay so that's nice Mm -hmm. to hear yep i I agree i agree exactly um and so those are going to be in the box they're going to be in the box yep from day one um they're they're guaranteed there cool okay and so so 
we're talking about a Kickstarter campaign, so let's talk a little bit about that, right? It's yeah, it's going live now, people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll include the link to the the Kickstarter page. But, Fantastic. Uh, give us the details about the Kickstarter. So um, I'm, I'm fairly I'm fairly confident it will fund. Um, what I w- would hope is that we get to unlock a lot of stretch goals. Um, so uh, I think if people have. If people remember the Dwarf campaign, those stretch goals are mainly focused around um, increased art for the game. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I guaranteed then that the game was complete out, out of the box. We weren't going to add anything through stretch goals. It's just about making it, giving it more personality. Um, we're doing things slightly differently this time. Um, so the first few stretch goals will be about getting unique art for those expansions we've just been talking about. Um, you'll know in the prototype copy they've just got a, a placeholder art that's the same as the back of the card, basically with a, a word saying what they are. We'll, we'll, we'll give them you know, unique art from the same from Lars, probably from the same artists that fits the rest of the game. Um, okay. Beyond that, we've got some possible component upgrades that we can get into the game um, in terms of you know card stock and that kind of thing. Um, rule books, all the cards are completely language independent, and we're putting. Uh, PDF rule books from various different languages available um, free of charge again online straight away from day one of the campaign. Nice. Um, so if we can, yeah, there's a possibility some of the stretch goals we might unlock physical copies of those rule books to put in the game as well. Um, and the final type of stretch goal we've got is the one that everybody would be most excited about, I think, which is more content. Um, mm-hmm. So there's some more of those mini expansions um, that are slightly less developed than the three that are in the box at the moment. But, you know, we've got rules for them. We're, we're trying them out. We're playtesting them at the moment. Um, and if we manage to unlock those, then they will be going into every copy of the game as well. Um, so, you know, really increasing the number of these expansions that are in the box. There's nothing that's uh, an add-on or a Kickstarter exclusive or anything else. It's just improving the game. Ah, okay. And so the expansions, if, if they get funded, will be in the box. They won't yeah. be standalone products. No, that's right. right. They're, they're all. Yeah. I, it's it's difficult terminology. I think you know, you hear the word expansion and you instantly think it's something else you've got to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, or get to buy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, I think they're referred to as, as we're just talking about the universe games. I think yeah. they're referred to as expansions there. Um, so we're just sort of applying the same terminology, really. Yeah. Okay. Um, how much is the game going for? What's the Kickstarter price? Kickstarter price is going to be nineteen dollars. Nice. Okay, that's US dollars. That's US dollars. Yeah. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Retail, if it makes it to retail, will be twenty-five. So you're getting a, a discount for backing on Kickstarter. Cool. Okay. And uh, da, 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 what else? Uh, how about the delivery date? When do you when do you expect it to be released? Obviously these days that's so in flux who knows right yeah yeah it is in it is in flux and it's difficult with um with everything that's happened in in china um I, you know people that are aware of kickstarters and follow kickstarters will know that um that said i think we're probably going to be manufacturing in europe um which should make things a lot more straightforward it'll make um shipping times a lot quicker um and I believe we're aiming actually for an early summer this year um, shipping. Oh, okay, that's pretty so, pretty quick. Yeah, it's Sorry. really quick, and um, you know I think we, we've yeah, the, the publisher now is um, has delivered several games. They know what they're doing. Um, they always factor in uh, a couple of months leeway for things to go wrong to their shipping estimates. Um, Dwarf was a bit of a weird one because of the pandemic. We actually got it out two months ahead of schedule um, in Europe. Or well, maybe even more than that. It was, it was a few months ahead of schedule in Europe. Um, back in, it was this time last year, it shipped to everybody in Europe. But because of coronavirus and everything else, those copies then sat in Europe and they didn't get to America, I think, until about October time, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that's always something we can't guarantee. Um, but we... You know, as I say, we we should be shipping um, should be shipping early think, summer for this. I think I got mine before October. I don't think it took quite that long. I don't Good. remember. Honestly, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I remember there was a delay, um, and it was really you know frustrating. Um, the fact that people in Europe had the game and were playing the game, and people in America didn't. 
Yeah, and that's what happens. I, I I'll have to confess, uh, the timing for it showing up was not good for me. You know, with the coronavirus and all that. I think mm. I played it once, and I have not gone back to it. Okay, largely because of coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, that's how it was. And we didn't mention it, but we probably should. The publisher is Dragon Dawn Dragon Dawn Productions. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, they, they've done a few different games over the years. The one they're probably best known for, um, particularly among solo players, is Perdition's Mouth which is a, a vast, sprawling, very dark um, Euro dungeon crawler. Mm-hmm, yep. Uh, well, regarding the, the shipping, you also you also mentioned that uh, there's issues with China that make it hard, but shipping anywhere is bad because you sent me the, the copy you sent me, I think you sent yeah. it to me early December, something yeah. like that. I didn't get it until January. It's, it's I mean, I, in, in the UK at the moment, you know, we've got huge issues at the moment. Um same which here. I think you know, Brexit has been compounded by coronavirus and borders being shut down for that reason. And I know, as you say, when I was sending stuff out in December, borders start to shut down at that point because of COVID and that puts shipping delays on a lot of things at this end, delays on your end as well for other <laughs> politics and virus. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know I've had a few things um, just this year that I, I've tried getting from Europe and it's it's been a nightmare, things that are sat in customs and all the things we haven't had to worry about here up until now. <laughs> Wow, yeah, yeah. I I looked at the tracking information for the game after I got it, mm. and um, it reached the U.S. around Christmas Day, and then I think it was right. another two weeks before it showed up here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah shipping custom. shipping everywhere is awful at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. Who knows when that's going to to improve again? Yeah, hopefully, hopefully by summer. Yeah, you hopefully, never know. As this game is shipping. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, so I don't think there's anything else about the Kickstarter unless you, there's anything you want to mention that you can think of the kick, you know, about the Kickstarter campaign itself. Um, I don't think so. I mean, we said it started, you know, say past tense since this is going out on the Saturday, started on 21st of January. It's finishing on the 2nd of February. It's a 10 day campaign, it's not running for a long time. Oh, okay. I, I like those short ones. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I like them from them. the, <laughs> I like them from the other side as well. Yeah, yeah, but. <laughs> Is there anything else about the game itself that we haven't mentioned that you'd want to say? Uh, I don't think so, no. Obviously, we spent a lot of time talking about the theme and the mechanics. I'm glad to hear that you've been enjoying it. Um, and we covered the stretch goal. So that's you know that's the, the crucial things to cover, isn't it? And people can always reach out to, to me. I'm around on, um, on Board Game Beat. People can always reach out to me or to the publisher on social media to, to ask more. We're more than happy to answer questions. That's right. Okay, cool. Um, and so you have started a podcast yourself recently. I have. I have. The, we recorded the second episode earlier this week. Yeah, and it just hit yesterday, at least. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's called More Games Than Time. It is. It is. Um, it, it turns out trying to think up a name for a podcast isn't easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be, it could be tricky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, you know, when I settled on the one-player podcast, one of the reasons I picked it was just so it would show up first alphabetically. In the, in the well, yeah, and, and you got first choice, Albert. Yeah, I did. <laughs> it's a well, crowded space now. <laughs> the, the only reason I started it was because I wanted to listen to Solid Show Podcast, and there wasn't any. And I said, you know, I'm just going to have to well, do it if I want to hear it. Well, that was, yeah, that was similar, I think, to when we, Roger and I. So Ro- Roger, um, mm-hmm. that's my co-host, um, him and I have alternated hosting the the One Player Guild UK meetups in the last couple of years, um, mm-hmm. and we I think we first started talking about this nearly a year ago about the idea of doing this um, when things like um, low player count had just come to the end of its run, ENGN was coming to the end of its run, all the sort of solo podcasts that we that I like to listen to. Yeah, one-player podcast had disappeared for a while. Yeah, yeah, that that was um, in a a bit in a hiatus. So suddenly everything was disappearing. Um, So we sort of started, I think, for similar reasons that you have, or that you did. Um, We're not, you know, Roger's keen that it shouldn't be exclusively solo solo game Mm -hmm. focused, Um, and we will discuss uh, multiplayer games against the multiplayer experience. But um, so I mean, the, the first half of each show consists of us talking about the games that we've been playing in in the given month my because of who i am and my um my preferences i'm pretty much always going to be talking about games from a solo perspective and that's yeah that's what so that's always going to be a core part of the podcast roger also plays games solo um 
he's perhaps less solo focused than I am, but certainly at the moment with coronavirus going on, um, he's got the choice between covering solo games or playing games through Board Game Arena. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, I think yeah, pretty much all the games we're talking about are, are solo games and going into the future, most of them will be. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's it's like Julius and I were, I mostly only play solo games anyway. Yeah. Even without the virus, that was true in the past. I don't know that that'll change much in the future. Julius does play more multiplayer games, so so he'll bring in a multiplayer aspect to the games a lot more. Yeah, likely. and I think it's, worth, it's always worthwhile talking about that. Um, yeah, my... Yeah. my yeah, you know, I, I tend to meet up once a week. Um, or I did meet up once a week with a local board game group. Um, haven't now since February last year. <laughs> mm. um, but that was, you know, sort of one or two games a week, and most of my most of my playtime was solo, and and will continue to be so because that's what I enjoy. Yeah, same here. Yeah, absolutely. I I I got a game for Christmas, The Lost Ruins of Arnak. Oh yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm been, I'm intrigued to, to play that. I'm enjoying it. It's fun. I, I like it a lot. Um, yeah. I'm interested in playing it multiplayer. I played it with my son once and right. he hasn't wanted to play again. I probably should have let him beat me that game. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. it's, it's not, yeah, it's not a co-op game, is it? No, it is not. No, you're, no. I'm just, so I'm just thinking game. sort of out loud. I, I, I find that competitive games that I play solo, I don't want to play with other people. Um, co-op yes. games are fine because it doesn't change the experience too much. But the idea of playing a competitive game with someone else that is going to interact with me in ways that I don't want them to interact with me <laughs> doesn't appeal. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I had that issue with Snowdonia where mm-hmm. I, I played it. I played it a bunch of solitaire, and then I went and tried multiplayer, and I was really excited. And yeah, I did not like that experience. Everybody kept messing with me and doing stuff that I was going to do. It, exactly. Here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> now, with Lost Ones of Arnak, I have not played multiplayer. As I said other than with my son that one game, but it. The way the the AI works, the bot, um, mm-hmm. I think it does a good job of um, being like a player and doing all the stuff a player doesn't get in your way the same way. So I, I have a feeling the multiplayer experience would be relatively similar. Good. I mean, it, it does everything you would do. It, it takes cards, it buys cards, it uh, yeah, it advances, it races you up the the track of research and and all that stuff. So okay, yeah, it, it's an e game. I'm sure yeah. I'll cover it at some point. Oh, I look forward to anyway, it. I'm sorry, I was talking. We were talking about your podcast, <laughs> and I stole that again. <laughs> so yeah, so you have done two episodes so far, about a month apart. Is that about the time you expected? They're they're long episodes. I can. They are long episodes. Yeah. Um. So we're going to carry on, carry on once a month. Um. People can, you know, that gives you potential people to pause them and do something else if they want. Um. Roger does another p- podcast as well on the RPGs that he does with some other people. So that's okay. two podcasts a month that he's doing. Um, so, yeah, we're going to carry on once a month, sort of mid-month um, that, that we published, um, talking about games, we've, as I say, we've been playing in the previous month, um, and then another section at the end um, on, a, on a thematic basis. Um, Roger and I sort of, I can't even remember what we discussed in the first <laughs> first episode. Um, something about the ways di- different, the interaction, I think, in games was the first episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one, we've actually got a... a a long conversation uh, discussion between me and the developer for Maze Howe is the second half of the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I started listening to that and then I said, you know, let me stop and, and listen to after we talk. Just <laughs> doesn't think whatever I say or anything like that. Okay. Well, I, I hope you I hope you find it interesting. I, I thought it was uh, an interesting exercise to do for people that a developer, I think, is a, a, a largely um, poorly understood role in the board game industry. Yep. Um, so, you know, a conversation between developer and designer and um, talking about the game that they've worked on together, I thought was something that people wouldn't normally get to hear. Yep. I, I was enjoying it. And, and before I stop, that's right. And you, you guys made a comment about how, what was it? Oh, shoot, I don't remember. <laughs> um, about, oh, you, you, you said that when you're designing a game, you really don't want to design it for yourself. You want to design it for the audience, right? If it's a commercial yeah. game. And and I heard that. I was like, no, no, I, I completely disagree with you on that. <laughs> and that, that's when I realized maybe I should just wait until, until after we've chatted before. Well, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing. I think you know, the, the, you, there's no point in designing a game that you don't enjoy. Yes. Yeah. If you're not enjoying it, don't design it. Cause exactly. And I mean, certainly when I was um, – when I was designing PMP games, that's what I was doing. I was designing a game that I wanted to play. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think getting extra perspectives, extra eyes on a game um, that's going to be published that you want people to pay money for. Yeah. Then yeah, so it's not a case. It's not a question of designing a game for an audience, but recognizing that your your perspective isn't the only valid one. That's true. Yep. And you know, I'm a, I'm a programmer, and the same sort of thing happens with software. Like I could make something, I could say, "Oh, this is fantastic. This is nice. Mm. I, I love it." And then I give it to a user, and they have trouble with it, and stuff that I thought was a really good idea doesn't actually work in the real world for other people. Yeah, exactly. And or it's unintuitive or whatever. And you, you need other eyes to look at something. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so so that's your podcast. I'll include a link for that too in the show notes. Thanks. Uh, so folks can find it. Um, congratulations. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> and congratulations on the Kickstarter. Well, thanks. Let's hope it's funded by the time this goes out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll, well, you know, I, I shouldn't actually make any judgment calls because, well, too late. <laughs> um, uh, any Anything else you want to say in closing? Uh, I, I don't think so. Um, I think, yeah, we've covered everything there. There'll be more stuff to come in the future and I look forward to carrying on enjoying the Renaissance of the One Player podcast as well. All right. Thank you. Yep. Uh, how do people reach you? Um, Cornish Lee on Board Game Geek. Um, I am on Twitter. I think it's Lee Broderick or Lee G Broderick. You can tell I don't go on Twitter that often. <laughs> um, Cornish Lee on Board Game Geek is the, is the best way to reach me. Got it. Okay. Yep. Cool. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for having me, Albert. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening.